This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Chapter 5, you'll find that on page 1016. Page 1016 in the Pew Bibles we, we provide there, First Peter 5. Something I want to share with you from here. Let me just read some verses from 1 Peter 5, and then I'll explain why are we back in 1 Peter. Okay. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Then you remember he told the shepherds how to shepherd the flock. And then verse 4, he said to encourage them. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is the crown which is glory. That's what that means if you remember. Then in verse 10, he speaks to all the flock and says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let me, let me pray again. Lord, use this time, dear God, to help us understand what the Spirit means to tell us about glory, about the glory of Christ. We pray you would deepen our understanding and grant us hope that sustains. Speak to all our hearts and minds. Give Clarity, Lord, to my words, help us to be receptive in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all. You can have a seat. Yeah. Well, let me explain while we're back in First Peter, <laughs> just for a day. Uh, the last sermon in First Peter was called The True Grace of God. And that came in part from what he said there in verse 12. He said, this is the true grace of God. In other words, everything he wrote about, especially that suffering comes in this life, but suffering leads to glory. If you remember, he said, this is the true grace of God. And the grace of God towards believers culminates in glory. And that's what Peter had been saying, and that's what he says here at the end. Uh, you heard me read it. He's but Peter says, I'm a partaker of glory that is going to be revealed. And you shepherds, you also will receive the unfading crown, which is glory. And not just you, but everyone whom he has called, he's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And we zoomed through this, and then I was uh, asked to preach on that very subject uh, this last week at the pastor's conference on what it means to be partakers uh, of glory. And so I thought I'd come back and share this with you uh, because I was, we didn't take this kind of time when we went through this chapter. And also because the Lord has a way of just punctuating the things he wants to say and the things he wants us to learn. Uh, you know, we, we've had some difficulties in the church. People have had great loss and experienced great pain like the Lethlers and others who are sick. And we are a generation that is far too accustomed to thinking about living, you know, making the most of this life, gathering experiences and so forth, rather than about life's frailty and life's brevity and the fact that it's nothing compared to the glory to come. And as I finish preparation with all this, just the God and Again, he punctuates these things. Uh, last Sunday, this was after I preached at the conference on that theme, I received, received news from uh, Pastor Eddier in North, in North Costa Rica that his older son, which is really only in his, barely in his 20s, um, had uh, a burst appendix and didn't deal with it for two days, didn't know what it was and was confused because that gets really bad then, right? And so he came very close. He's still in the hospital and he's, recovering day by day and so that was on my mind and then also yesterday I held the hand 
I held the hand of uh, one of my longest standing friends' father who is close to passing away. He has a, a big tumor that they discovered on his kidney and he made a profession of faith about a year ago uh, at the age of 94, he's 95 now. And, but he's, even if he is a Christian, he's a very baby Christian. And now he faces death. So I held his hand and we, we talked about what it means uh, to enter glory and to one day experience glory and so forth. Um, listen, life is difficult, this life this life is hard, and it's harder for some than others, harder for some than some of you. Uh, it, it's, it's painful for those who have chronic illnesses, disabilities they have to live with from here till the time they die. It's hard for those like the Lefflers who experience such a sudden, massive loss. It's, and there's other difficulties that we face, and so... The Lord is bringing us back. He brought me back by virtue of what I was asked to preach on, and then he, I'm bringing it back to you, that we need to learn to think more about what's coming than about trying to milk everything out of this life. Amen? All right, so what does it mean that we are partakers with the glo- of the glory uh, to be revealed? Well, first I want to take a minute to define glory because it's one of those Bible words we throw around a lot. And I don't mean the verb to glorify. I mean the, the noun, the glory of God. Right? What, what is the glory of God? The glory of Christ and, and so forth. We sing about it. We talk about it. Well, It's, it's kind of like the word beauty. It's hard to really define with clarity. Um, it gets down to the usage of the word. If you look up the dictionary meaning of the Hebrew word, which is used repeatedly in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord, what that word means is, uh, is weight or heaviness. You say, well, that doesn't help me. What do you mean, the heaviness? Well, it's, it's how the term is being used relative to God's nature. In other words, the glory of God the glory of God is the, the weightiness, the heaviness of the totality of his attributes. The splendor, sometimes the word is translated, the splendor of the beauty and greatness of all his manifold perfections. Everything that God is, the glory of God. Now sometimes God's glory is spoken of as going public. In other words, it, some of it becomes visible in some way to some degree. Sometimes glory is spoken of when it goes public as an adornment. For example, let me make this statement. Paul says the glory of a woman is her hair. Hmm. God is frequently said to be adorned with light. With light. You think of the Shekinah glory, right? When that light in the cloud descended upon, upon the, uh, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and then later in the temple. That was the manifest, visible adornment of the glory of God appearing as light. Uh, Paul in the New Testament says that God, he's speaking of the Father, the eternal Father, God lives in unapproachable light. In other words, if God were to manifest the totality of his glory, that would be visible adornment as a light, a bright, all-consuming light. And and if it's not filtered, we would not stand it. We couldn't survive in the presence of the manifest glory of God that isn't mediated. You say, how do you know that? Well, because scripture says so. I just said, Paul says, God lives in unapproachable light. How close can you get to the sun? (laughs) And Moses asked to see the glory of God. Remember that? Show me your glory. And God said, I'll let you see the back part of my glory, as it were, and I'll pass by you, and I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock and protect you. And then he said, you cannot see my face because no one can see me and live. So there you have the glory of God, the splendor of the of, of his manifold perfections, his attributes. 
And at times that glory goes public. It's mediated. It's filtered in some way so that we would not be consumed. Think about Christ for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Before his resurrection, before his death and resurrection. His, he shone bright. His clothes were, were bright and so forth. Okay, so now it says, we are partakers of the glory to be revealed. So the first question is, well, what is the glory to be revealed to us, which we'll even partake in if God lives in unapproachable light, you see. So what is specifically the glory to be revealed? And I want to say two things about that. First of all, it is the unique glory that belongs to Christ's person. The unique glory that belongs to Christ's person. It is His glory. The glory of the resurrected and the ascended God-man. That's a, that's a glory unique to him within the Holy Trinity. Why? Because only God the Son has added humanity to his eternal nature. Only God the Son has added humanity, and now it is a resurrected humanity which he possesses. And so that is the unique glory that is going to be revealed. Um, so we think about we think about the resurrection, and we should, and we preach the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there's no gospel. But we don't often think enough about the effects of the resurrection upon Jesus, the man. Jesus of Nazareth, the man, a real man. Because the effects upon him is what we're going to partake in, what we're going to share in as well, you see. In chapter 1, Verse 21, Peter testified to this glory that belongs to Christ. He says in verse 21 that he raised him from the dead and gave him glory, you see. Meaning something he didn't possess until he was raised from the dead. He was given that glory. Gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice, excuse me, if you... Verse 14, I said, yeah, uh, but it's 13 that I want. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Not, not just God's glory in some sort of all-encompassing way, but his, who? Christ's glory. So in chapter 1, Peter says, the Father gave him glory when he raised him from the dead. And the glory to be the revealed is Christ's glory. It's a unique glory to the Trinity. Why? Because only God the Son has added humanity to himself. And now he possesses this glorified humanity. Uh, Christ, you remember, is called by Paul the first fruits. The first fruits of this new humanity. He's the only human being who possesses this glory right now. Uh, times uh, we reflect on this uh, when we come to Easter and we think about the resurrection and we turn often, not always, but we'll turn often to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which uh, sometimes we call the resurrection chapter. And Paul there is dealing with matters that uh, there were some doubts and questions about whether there is a resurrection coming. And he says if there's no resurrection coming, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then our faith is utterly useless. And he addresses some questions, and he says there uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse 35, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he answers them, I won't go through all of it, but down below in verse 40, he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory, he's talking here now about that visible manifest glory, the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. And he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. 
It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, all those things were true of Christ, who is the first fruits to be raised. His human body was absolutely human, just like yours and mine. It was sown in dishonor, but it was raised in glory. It was a body that had weakness. He could hurt. He could hunger. He could, he could bleed, but it's been raised in power right now. It was a natural body, but now he says it has been raised a spiritual body. Now, I want to say something about that because I do want to clarify something there. When, when Paul says it has raised a spiritual body, he's not saying that each person, each human being who's a believer, like Jesus, will have two separate, utterly different bodies that are totally disconnected from each other. That one's a physical one and a second one is a spiritual one. He's not saying there's a different spiritual body that takes over. No. If you look at verse 44, there's only one it. It's the same body of Christ. It is sown a natural body. It is raised the spiritual body. It's the same body, you see. There's a continuity, but it's different. There's a continuity, yet it is different. The disciples had some trouble recognizing that it was Jesus. And yet at one point they understood it really was Jesus, right? Uh, it was different. It was a body that, he, that is fit for heaven. He's in the presence of God, the Father, our bodies aren't fit for heaven right now. He lives in unapproachable light. So there is continuity is the point that, that he's making. Uh, and I want to make sure you understand. So why does he call it a spiritual body then? Well, not because, not because it's ethereal or misty or uh, like a ghost. It, it, it's a spiritual body because it, 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 was, it was his body transformed by God the Holy Spirit. It was the power of the Spirit that resulted uh, in him possessing what he calls now the spiritual body. Uh, Peter said that himself, that much himself. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. When we went through this, I said that's a small s spirit there in the ESV, but I think it's a capital S. He was made alive in or by the Spirit. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 8:11 that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Now, someone may say, oh, wait a minute, you read from Acts, and there it says that God the Father raised Jesus. Well, the, 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 the acts of God are undivided. It says that God the Father raised Jesus, and Jesus says, I have authority to raise my body up, and in fact, I will raise this, this temple up in three days, and, and yet the Spirit does it as well. And so the Father and the Son were involved in the resurrection, but the power came through the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. And so that's why he has what Paul now calls a spiritual body. Okay, so there's continuity. The, the perishable body in Christ put on an imperishable body. Richard Gaffin said, this was the final and definitive investiture of his person with glory. Like we read from earlier in 1 Peter, right? God gave him glory. And that was a resurrection existence as a human being, as a man. You say, well, didn't he always possess glory? He wasn't he the Son of God? Yes, the Son of God, you know, eternal glory with the Father and the Spirit. But when he, in the incarnation, added humanity to himself, he added that weakness, that perishable human existence, and now he is the resurrected God-man. All right, so what is the glory that is going to be revealed to us of which we are going to become partakers it's this glory, the unique glory uh, that we're going to see. And it is that manifestation, that revelation of God the Son as the resurrected God-man. But there's another aspect of the glory to be revealed. And it's not just his unique person, but it's his unique position. In his first life, what was he? he how was he treated? He was, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, right? 
There was nothing unique about him that we should look at him or be drawn to him. But now he is what? He's enthroned at the right hand of the Father. He, he's no longer wearing the cross. He's now wearing the crown, as it were, right? And so he has a unique position. He is Lord of Lords. Look at what Peter said in chapter 3, in verse 22, speaking of Jesus, after the resurrection, Jesus is the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised the third day for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, but not merely for the forgiveness of our sins. He was raised and he ascended and went to the right hand of the Father that he also might be enthroned and be the King of kings and take his rightful place as the Lord of glory that he might then pour out his Holy Spirit upon his new covenant people. That's the bigger picture. We need to remember that. Paul says in Romans 14, 9, listen to this, says, for to this end Christ died and live again. And we might say that our sins might be forgiven. Or if this is Paul in Romans, that we might be justified. But listen to what he says in Romans 14, 9, to this end Christ died and lived again, that he, he might be Lord, Lord of both the dead and the living. Say, he is the Lord. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. God has made all his enemies uh, put under him. And we await the time when he will bring an end to rebellion and the brokenness of this world. There are three qualities to his lordship. It is a universal lordship. It is an earned lordship. And it is a restored lordship. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It is a universal lordship. I think that's obvious. He's, he's been placed above all powers, right? Everything. So Peter said in chapter 3, and Peter also preached this on the day of Pentecost. When you, if you remember in the book of Acts in chapter 2, when the, when the Spirit was poured out in the church and people did magnificent things and they were being accused of being, uh, uh, being drunk, and, and Peter stood up and he preached the gospel and he said this in Acts chapter 2. He said, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all, we believers here, are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, the Father that would be, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are he seeing and hearing. When they were speaking in other tongues, other languages. For David did not ascend into the heavens. He quoted from David. He's saying he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. He himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, who would those be then? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter concludes with this. Listen, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Messiah. He is Lord. He is Messiah, the Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified, he said to them. So his lordship is what? Is a, an, an all-encompassing. It is a universal lordship. Beloved, Christ is above all nations, all powers, all governments right now. Do you know that? The things that happen in this world don't happen outside the scope of his sovereignty or his planning. He is lord over diseases. He is lord over our fears. He is lord of all. The author of Hebrews says, we do not now see him as, uh, as Lord of all, but yet one day we will, you see. It's a universal lordship, so we can appeal to him and trust him. That's why he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, right? Secondly, it's an earned lordship. An earned lordship. What do I mean by that? Well, John Murray, for example, a well-known theologian, observes in his comments on Romans 14.9 that I just quoted, which said, to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, might be. Well, wait a minute. Isn't the Son of God always been Lord of everything? He's the Son of God. Ah, but we're talking about Christ now. We're talking about the Son of God incarnate, raised from the dead. He was raised that he might be Lord. Uh, hmm, of the dead and the living. John Murray comments on that and says, Our Lord's authority over all things is not a reign due to his deity, but it is bestowed on him in his humanity 
Why? Because in submission to the Father, he humbled himself to death and he triumphed over sin and death and Satan, you see. And he did this as the ideal human being, the ideal man. Sometimes we think of Jesus doing what he did, just kind of skating through life, relying on the fact that he's God. <laughs> but he set aside that. Remember Philippians chapter 2, and he did what he did as, as, as a real human being, trusting in the word of the Father and relying upon the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so this lordship, this position he has as the God-man was bestowed on him because of his submission to the Father's plan. It is an earned lordship. He is worthy, right, we sing. Worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor and praise, right? Because he died and with his bloody purchase for God, a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So don't, we don't forget that. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter two, that he became obedient even to the point of death and for this reason, God, the Father, has given to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's a universal lordship. It is an earned lordship. And lastly, it is a restored lordship. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean the fact that mankind was meant and designed to be overall creation. Genesis 1.26, Adam, the first man, right, was given dominion over the earth and over the creatures of the earth. And uh, as a result of sin and rebellion, it's what is brought upon the human race is the heap of trouble and the heartbreak that we experience every day in death. But Christ, the last Adam, as he's called in the New Testament, has brought humanity back to its proper place above all creation. Adam, the first man, was made in the image of God and he distorted that image when he, when he gave in to temptation and sin. Christ is the image of God in humanity. And so now he has restored uh, man's position, humanity's position over the created order. So it is a universal lordship. It is an earned lordship. It is a restored lordship. So what is the glory that lies ahead that is going to be revealed to us, made visible to us in which we will partake? It is going to be the unique glory that belongs to Christ who is now the resurrected God-man and that unique glory that belongs to his position as King of kings and Lord of lords. We will see him as the sovereign one. Okay? Now, how is it if that's the glory that's going to be revealed, how is it that believers will partake of it? That word partake is that, is that same root word koinonos, koinonia, it, that profound partnership that we have in the Lord's Supper with Christ, that fellowship, that communion. How is it that we will partake of this glory which we just spoke of? Well, there's three ways that we'll partake of this glory. Believers will partake experientially at the resurrection. Believers will partake authoritatively in the consummation of the kingdom. I'll explain that. And believers will partake perceptively when faith becomes sight. So we'll partake three ways, experientially, authoritatively, and perceptively. Now let's think about it. We will partake experientially at the, the resurrection, uh, the resurrection of the dead in Christ. If we were talking about what category are we in in theology, this is the category called glorification. We're talking about the glorification of believers. And the, this glorification is the final phase, the final step of God's plan of salvation, God's work of redemption. Uh, if you remember what Paul said in the book of Romans, he creates that great chain of salvation, right? The chain of redemption. And he says there in Romans chapter 8, it says, For those whom he foreknew, that is, those whom God the Father 
knew in an intimate way before time, he also predestined those same people to be conformed to the image of his son. Look at that. Made like, conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, that is his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. He puts those all in the past tense because in Christ it's all a finished work. So believers, God's aim in your life is not simply to forgive you of your sin. God's aim in your life and your existence beyond this life is to actually be conformed to the image of Christ, a perfect humanity, because we are in Christ. Everything that is Christ is ours. Everything that Christ accomplished, he did not accomplish, disconnected from us. In Christ we have died to sin, says Paul, right? And we've been raised spiritually to a new life. And so what lies ahead is in Christ we will be raised from the dead and we will be made like him. That's a tremendous statement. Right now, our bodies are connected to him. How do you say? How so you say? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. So our bodies are connected to him inadequate temples that we are (laughs) because it's part of our Adamic uh, nature, the flesh in which we live, right? Right now, this temple, which is connected to Christ because we are the temple of the Spirit of Christ. They are diseased. They are weak. They are broken. We get tempted, we become discouraged as long as we're still in this flesh. We become dismayed as long as we are in this flesh. We deteriorate as f- uh, while we're in this flesh. Listen, that is what, how it, that's what it's like today. But it's not what it'll be like then. Today, today is a passing moment. Then, is everlasting. Today is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians uh, that, that, that which is seen and weak, but that which is unseen to our eyes now is coming and it's powerful. And our sufferings in this body not worthy of comparison, he says, to the glory that's coming. It's going to be just beyond our imagination. The redemption of our bodies. That's what he's talking about. And that this will take place needs to be beyond any doubt in your mind, beloved. If you are a Christian, you cannot doubt the resurrection of the dead because you would be doubting the resurrection of Christ. And to doubt the resurrection of Christ is to doubt the gospel. To doubt the gospel is to still be in your sins, you see. So be convinced God does not lie. Christ was raised, the first first fruits. He was seen by the disciples. He was seen by more than 500 at one time. And if you're a Christian, it's because God opened your eyes to believe and trust the good news of the gospel. And so this will be accomplished. It will be accomplished by the power of God. We will be with Him, and we will be like Him. And we will, I could put it this way, because we'll be like him, we'll be able to be with him. (laughs) And I could reverse it, because we will be with him, then we'll be made like him, you see. Because we're going to the holy place. We're going to stand in the presence of the living God-man. And you think about that. That's our destiny. And this will be accomplished by his power. This is gospel word, truth here. This is the good news. This is part of the good news, you understand. It's more than forgiveness. And we can embrace that uh, more powerfully. I think it will help us. Romans chapter 8, 11. Listen to these verses. I'll just go through them quickly. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's where it starts. Does he dwell in you? Does the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you? If if he doesn't, then you're not a Christian. And you don't acquire the spirit. You don't seek the spirit. You, You believe in Christ. 
Confess your sin. Trust Him for your salvation. Believe it was your sins that He died for and was raised from the dead. The Spirit will come into you. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So there's the continuity, right? It's your body, not some other body from somewhere, but life will be given to our mortal bodies. Secondly, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I like that he's honest, huh? This is a lowly body. <laughs> it feels like it's getting lower every day. He says, he will transform our lowly, our, our material, you see, our, this earthly, right? This natural, perishable body. He will transform our lower, lowly body to be like his glorious body. How? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The same power that God exerts through Christ who holds the universe together, who can say, let there be light and there's light, you see. By that same power, he will transform these lowly bodies into the likeness of his body. And lastly, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Amen, we are. And what we will be has not yet appeared to everyone. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. We'll be with him and we'll be like him. And we'll be able to be with him because by God's power, he will make us like him, you see. So believers will partake experientially in the resurrection of the dead and we will be made like his, his body. Our bodies will come to their final full redemption. Believers, secondly, will partake authoritatively in the kingdom, and I, let me explain this, I won't develop it much, but I need you to think along these lines. Jesus said to his disciples, to, his, to the 12, actually, he said that they would sit on 12 thrones. Judging Israel, when, the, when he says, when the Son of Man comes into his kingdom, when he comes in glory. And Jesus, at times, was pulling from the prophet Daniel, and I think this is one of those times when he's pulling from the prophet Daniel. If you remember in Daniel chapter 7, I know it's been a while since we went through that, it was 2019, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision, and he said this about the vision. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. In other words, he went up the clouds to the ancient of days, the eternal father, and he was presented before him, and he says, and to him, to the Son of Man, who was presented to the Father, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it's clear that the kingdom is going to be given to Christ, and he's going to rule, right? That he has all authority over the nations, but then it says, interestingly enough, later in the chapter there in verse 22, it says that at the, after the destruction of those kingdoms, it says that the time came when the saints, plural, when the saints possess the kingdom. In verse 27, down below, he says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So the kingdom is given to the Son of Man, the one like a Son of Man, and that authority in the kingdom is also given to the saints who belong to the Most High. And he, Jesus picks up on that, and Jesus says that the, the 12 apostles will rule on 12 thrones. And then Paul, Paul builds on this. Remember, he writes to the church at Corinth, and he they couldn't settle some disagreements between them, and he argues from the greater to the lesser. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you understand that saints are going to judge the nations? That we're going to judge the angels? I think you can settle some problems now, I hope. Huh? Can you settle some disagreements? Do you understand what's going to happen to us? In the book of Revelation, 
in the vision given to John, it's Jesus who comes to the church in chapter 2 and says to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. There it is again. Now don't ask me what that's, what that's going to look like. <laughs> I have no idea. But the point is this, that God has promised that we will become partakers in the execution of the judgment of the authority that's given to Christ somehow. So we will partake of that glory, both his, his resurrection body and his authority will partake experientially. This life is not all there is. It's not the end. And we'll partake uh, authoritatively and somehow that we will share in this authority in the new, uh, when the kingdom comes in its fullness before the new heavens and the new earth. And then lastly, believers will partake perceptively when faith becomes sight. In other words, we will witness, we will witness the revelation, the, uh, the unveiling, right, of the glory of Christ and we'll, we'll witness that and not be destroyed. Why? Because we'll have glorified eyes <laughs> in our glorified bodies, you see. And that's going to be a greater perception of who Jesus is and what it means that he did for us what he did. Because it's going to be clearer. Uh, Paul says, now we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. We live by faith, not by sight. And he says now, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, now we see through a mirror or a glass dimly, but then face to face, he says. It's like, re it's like recognizing that someone whom you know because of the shape of their body, uh, but you're seeing them through an opaque glass. You don't see them face to face, but you know it's them. But it's dim. You don't perceive any many of the details of this individual. So the object, the object is the same. Jesus Christ. Right now, he is the object of our faith. Then he will be the object of our sight. Faith becomes sight. And it's for this very thing that Jesus himself prayed. John 17. In the great high priestly prayer, Jesus said these words, John 17, 24, Father, I desire, I desire that they also whom you've given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Does God the Father answer the Son's prayers? <laughs> yes. And so we'll see him as he is, right? How wonderful must the glory of Christ be in, in his existence right now that we need to have glorified eyes first, right? It's like looking at an eclipse when I was a kid and I was told, you can't look at a solar eclipse directly. You'll burn your eyes out. So we put a little hole in an index card, right? You look down and see the image it's making below on a white piece of paper. And so that's what we see now dimly, a reflection. We, we see enough, we see enough, but not with clarity. Then faith becomes sight. Hmm. John Owen, the Puritan, who wrote a book called The Glory of Christ, profound book on, on the glory of Christ. John Owen says right now, what we know of Christ, he says, it is an obscure and imperfect, it is obscure and imperfect in comparison of his own real substantial glory, which is the object of vision in heaven. There's a wall between him and us, which yet he stands behind. Our present mortal state is this wall, which must be demolished before we can see him as he is. In the meantime, he says, we look at him. In the meantime, we look at him through windows of the ordinances of the gospel. In other words, by faith, we grasp what we can of Christ's person and work through the preaching of God's word, through the preaching of the gospel, and through the ordinances, the signs uh, uh, and of, of the Lord's table, which we looked at last week. What we see of Christ in the gospel it has saving power when God comes into our lives and 
opens our eyes that this is true. It has saving power, but it's not yet seeing him face to face. And what we perceive of him won't be entirely accurate. I hope you would say that the longer you're a Christian, you're saying, I'm understanding more about Christ and his person. I'm getting a sense of the value of his suffering and I'm going deeper in my grasping of, wow, his authority, his lordship, and all these things. Yes, but all of that is still dim and imperfect (laughs) because it's all what? It's all in a mind that's still affected by the flesh and it's only grasped by faith in the spirit illuminating God's word. Imagine what it will be like to be made like him and then perceive him with sight and see him as he truly is. For the first time, we'll see glory in an unfiltered way, an unmediated way. And we'll be able to withstand it because we'll have glorified uh, bodies and eyes. Again, Owen, he says, the excellencies of infinite wisdom, love, and power therein will be continually before us and all the glories of the person of Christ which we have before weakly and faintly inquired into will be in our sight forever. Well, you read Owens' book and it's this thick, you know, and he writes as a Puritan and and all that he thought, all that he said, he still would say, it's weak. (laughs) You say, that's way beyond me. Yeah, but it's still weak compared to what he said, compared to seeing him and be able to perceive it because sin is gone. It's no longer in the way. My mind, it's all cleared up. So, beloved, this is how we'll partake. What is the glory we're going to partake in? It's going to be revealed. It's the unique glory that belongs to Christ, the Son of God, as the resurrected God-man, the unique glory of his position as Lord of Lords. How will we partake in this glory when it's revealed in the end? We'll partake experientially because we'll be made like him. We'll partake authoritatively, author, authoritatively in that somehow, by whatever means he means, we will share in the exercise of judgment. And lastly, we will partake perceptively because we will no longer be looking dimly through what our mind can grasp here from the book, but we'll see him face to face. Listen, that's what lies ahead, and we're a generation that far, is far more accustomed, far more consumed to thinking about living than we are about dying, living and making the most of life here, collecting the most things, the most experiences, our best life now as it's put, right? Rather than life's brevity, life's frailty, and eternity's glory. God, I think, has been speaking to us too about this. Bringing events into our lives and to the members of our church and other places to remind us of the frailty of life, the brevity of life, and to remind us of glory that lies ahead, to, make our, to have our thoughts more consumed with the hope of glory and to help those who need the comfort of that very same thing and help others to understand that, that without it, they will face judgment. Hmm. When Christ comes, and his glory is revealed. For some, it's going to mean judgment. If today, this morning, you not, you're not a Christian, you've not been reconciled to God, there's nothing to go do or achieve. He invites you to confess your weakness, confess, admit your sin and your need of redemption, forgiveness, and to believe that God The sufferings of Jesus were for you, your sins, not just sin out there, but your sin. Believe that God raised him from the dead. For you and me who are in Christ, the return of Christ and the the revelation of his glory is going to mean finally, beloved, liberty, liberation. Liberation from the heap of pain and suffering and heartbreak that fills our lives because we live in this age, the age of brokenness. Yeah, that's what it'll mean at last. And sometimes God punctuates our lives to remind us of what? What are you living for? Are you prepared to die? Can you help others prepare to die? Can you comfort them? 
Yeah, when I heard of Emmanuel and, and what happened to him in Costa Rica, that young boy, he's you know, barely 20, and he's coming very close to death. Um, I could see the, uh, the impact, I could hear it, not because I, I wasn't there, but I, in my interactions with his father, Pastor Edier, the impact it made upon his person. He, he didn't ever liken himself to someone who is very sensitive and compassionate. In fact, I remember him asking me, uh, the times I've gone preaching there, he's very much sort of a kind of preacher, and then he would say, brother, where, where does this sensitivity that you have come from? I said, well, how about the school of pain, the school of suffering, school of age, I'm older than him. Well, this week the talk was what? He's, he got enrolled to the school, <laughs> and his, his whole demeanor has changed. Judgment, liberation, when Christ is revealed. Paul said that right now the whole creation groans, awaiting for the day when, when the adoption of our, of our sonship comes to its completion. And even we groan in these broken bodies and, and, and uh, the suffering that we experience. Romans 8, let me just read exactly what he says there. Romans 8, 23 and 24. He said, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, which is what? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. We're saved and we are to look forward to that. You know, I was quoting John Owen because John Owen um, if you know the story of John Owen, the Puritan, the, the theologian pastor whom I quoted, he was tragically familiar with, with heartbreak uh, in ways we can't maybe imagine, you know. Uh, relationally and personally as well. He, at one point, he was, the, he was the great vice chancellor of Oxford University. He was very important. He was influential. He was successful. But in the second half of his life, he had been marginalized. He was pushed into obscurity. The new government was harassing him. And some of you know what it feels like to be like that. Maybe at your workplace, you're... You're being marginalized. Why? Because you don't think like the culture's thinking now and it's coming into the business world. And so we don't want to hear your opinion. You know, your thoughts don't matter anymore. Perhaps you feel that way in your family, right? Or if you can feel that way just from age. You're from that generation. But it even got worse for John Owen than simply being marginalized. He once was important, then he became a nobody and they were harassing him. It was worse than that because I think what outweighed all that was the fact that he buried all 11 of his children and his wife Mary before he died. You think of that. He looked down into 12 caskets at someone he loved dearly. 11 children and his wife Mary. After the death of his 10th child, he wrote these words. He said, a due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. Wow. He says, it will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life and it is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them which otherwise might perplex and enslave their souls. And I've seen this. It's a danger, let me tell you. Being wronged by someone, losing someone, something terrible happening can become a poison to your soul and your mind. And it pollutes it, slowly kills it so that you don't live in the joy of your salvation because you have placed so much hope in those things. Don't let your heart and mind become poisoned towards God that you can't worship Him in joy because things go difficult. Things are hard or things like this enter your life. 
And there's people in this room and in this church that are facing hard things and we need to remember to bring, to comfort one another with these words. To help remind each other of the joy and the, the hope that lies ahead. My dad told me a story a long time ago. I haven't referred to it in, a, in ages here, but he told me a, long, a story that happened when he was a young boy at the end of World War II in the little village of Bunyata in Italy. And it was the end of, towards the end of World War II, and they were in the cellar. They went down the cellar because there was uh, bombing going on. And he went down the cellar with his mom and dad, my nono and nona, and he was down there. And he said that they were crying, and I could see their tears coming out, but they're, they're also struggling with smiles. And he was a little boy, so he said, what is, what is this? He said, what, you're, you're crying, but you're, you're smiling. What, what's wrong? What is this? And they said, oh, these are tears of joy. These are tears of joy. He said, why? He said, because those bombs are allied bombs. What's coming is liberation. Let life's pains remind you that what's coming is liberation. That every day God's bringing us closer and closer to the resurrection of the dead. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Please comfort those who are struggling.